1: I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to our latest episode of Late Boomers. Today, our guest is Christopher Pellegrini, a shochu and awamori expert. Yes, we will find out what that is. He is also an author and is the co host of two podcasts.
2: And I'm Mary Elkins. Christopher launched Honkaku Spirits in March 2020 with the mission of bringing Japanese spirits to American consumers. He's also a professor at Waseda University in Tokyo, Japan, where he's lived for the past 20 years. Welcome, Christopher.
3: Hello. Good morning. Good (laughs) afternoon. Good
2: evening. Yeah,
1: you're the next next day in Japan. That's correct. please, Please tell us about your education and background and how you got started on your career path.
3: Well, education is a great place to start from because it is really where I developed my interest in craft small batch drinks. And to start the story off, it goes back to a U.S. history class when I was in high school. Oh. I was tasked with creating a newspaper from the teens, from the 19. 19- 1911 to 1920, basically. And that happened to be the era of prohibition. And while we were trying to create every single page, every section of this newspaper, including advertisements from that era, I started to look into prohibition and it was all over the news at the time. I was in the library looking through microfiche and I was just trying to get my head around, my teenage head around what it was like to look at a newspaper back then and how was I going to imitate this? But there were so many articles about bathtub gin and moonshine and this, this wild, wild west of alcohol production and just, you know, drinks for adults back in the day that had been shut off. You know, you weren't allowed to drink anymore. So what did people do? They made it themselves.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So, well, that's really interesting. I wonder how you do this. And so I looked into, Home brewing and moonshine Uh-oh. and bathtub gin and I was like you know what it's not that hard to make beer maybe I should <laughs> try so mm-hmm. teenage me um assembled the equipment necessary now this had nothing to do with the newspaper reconstruction whatsoever I was now into <laughs> now you're on a tangent I was on a huge tangent and I was of course wasting time that was not going to help me get a good grade and- on the project but a friend of mine and I started making beer at home when we were kids and (laughs) it was in my in my bedroom closet and it flew under the radar for a couple of years and we started to make some pretty good homebrew to the extent that people would try it and be like you made
2: this did and your mother know you were doing this?
3: Not, not yet. Um, <laughs> it just was one of those things. It's one of those things where who in the world is going to number one think that their their kid in you know separate from being interested in anything that they're not allowed to do or have? Okay, that's normal. But who thinks that their child is going to put together the abil- the means? the system to start producing beer in their bedroom. I think most parents would just it would kind of just be like it wouldn't really strike yeah. most parents as being within the in the realm of possibility. And I think that helped me out quite a bit. Um, so yeah, did you make I was money to,
1: selling it to your
3: friends? I don't know if the statute of lim- limitations has lapsed on that yet. Okay. So I'm going to be <laughs> the fifth there. Okay. Um, but uh, it was, it was something that my friends thought was just wild and did definitely make us, it endeared us to the older, the upperclassmen in the school. So we were able to show up to, to bonfires and things. And they were like, uh. Oh, the brew boys are here. And, uh, <laughs> and we, we weren't, told to go home and you know so it was it was wild I, of course one day eventually I and this is I know this is sacrilege but I used to I used to brew while my parents were at church it was when the house was guaranteed to be deserted every Sunday and mm-hmm. so you know had the kitchen to myself and one day my father came home early and that was just the the, the end of my oh. um, home brewing career
2: oh did he uh, but, but did he taste it
3: he he it was funny the exact exchange was what is that smell and 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 i said um well we're we're making beer dad you can do that (laughs) um yeah we we can and it's actually kind of good he's like can i have some okay yeah sure dad you can have something wanders off into the living room and then it only took him about two and a half seconds to like wait wait a second wait a second wait a second I am the principal of the high school. (laughs) This is probably not going to look good if this gets out. So no, no, no. He came in and he squashed the whole endeavor. He's like, okay, no, 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 no more of this. No more. Uh You're Uh done. And I was like, okay, yeah, I figured that was coming. Um, My bad, sorry. And so that was essentially the end of the homebrewing endeavor. But I was able to take that to the local microbrewery, Otter Creek in Middlebury, Vermont. And I went to the then CEO, the president, and said, Mr. Miller, Mr. Lawrence Miller, can you please let me learn how this is really made because I'm fascinated by this. And that was the begin of another education. That was the begin of a quasi-apprenticeship at Otter Creek in Middlebury, where I turned into one of the biggest underage beer nerds you've ever met in your entire life. Mm. And where (laughs) as a out of a fit of luck and circumstance and being in the right place at the right time, I became the youngest commercial brewer in the United States of America back in the 90s when I was too young to drink what I was making. And it was, I was immensely proud of what I was doing and such a student of the trade. And I- you, you, I, I I just loved it so much. You, I can't even, I, that is not, there's no way to overstate that. I had the graveyard shift at this brewery, but I was making something that people lined up to fill growlers with. And I was so stoked about it. And there was a, there was a very, very intense time when I was thinking, maybe I'm not going to go to college. Maybe I'm just going to do this and maybe I'm going to start a brew pub or something you know, things just kept moving in whatever direction they wanted to move in. Uh, one year led to the next. Decades lapsed. I ended up in Korea. Then I was in Japan. I'm still in Japan. And I read ran face first into Japan's national spirits. Now, I had, I had come here knowing that, oh, good, I'm going to have a chance to learn about sake. And I'm going to have a chance to really get my head around that. I did not have a good opinion of sake living in the States because the quality of the sake available was incredibly low. And that which was available was unbelievably mishandled and allowed to spoil in many cases. Uh, Sake is, a lot of people call it a rice wine. Let's not call it a rice wine. It is made from rice exclusively, but it's actually more like a beer
4: Interestingly mm-hmm. enough, in mm-hmm. terms of
3: the process of making it oh. um, and with that, and j- I'm going to just leave that as it is because it's actually a pretty complicated process, but I'll come back to it when I talk about how shoju and awamori are made. But then one day I ran into these indigenous spirits, shoju and awamori. And I had never heard these words before moving to Japan. Mm-hmm. And most people in the States have still never heard these words. Uh-huh. but i quickly learned that these drinks are everywhere they are just as important to japanese culinary culture as sake is and they actually outsell sake here in japan so uh-huh. it was love at first sight i was deeply smitten with these traditions and i have been tumbling down that rabbit hole ever since it's we're on going on 20 years now and wow, just an amazing and, journey.
2: Yeah, you've lived in Japan now 20 years, right? That's,
3: that's And correct. tell us
2: more about how that all happened.
3: It wasn't my idea.
2: Oh.
3: <laughs> um, I was living in Korea at the time, in 2000 to 2002, Boy Meets Girl, Girl Hates Her Job, and Girl Wants to travel. Um, girl was really, really a big Japan fan. And she said, hey, do you mind if we go to Japan for a year? I said, oh, that's fine with me. Um, just I just want to make sure that we stay together. So whatever makes you happy makes me happy. So we moved here in late 2002. And I, again, was in education. I, I was teaching at the university, uh, a job that I have to one extent or another kept to this day.
2: Did you and speak Japanese then?
3: I did not, not a I spoke just the basics, the things that you can learn from pop songs, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And <laughs> uh, the second Japanese sentence that I ever learned was very simple, but it's awa, awa nashide kudasai, which means. No foam on my beer, please. (laughs) Very important. Very important. I want a glass of beer. I don't want a half glass of beer and a half glass of foam. And so I, I had never really thought I would end up living in Japan. I didn't plan ahead for it. And I arrived with very little idea other than a couple of short trips here. I had never really experienced Japan to any great degree. And my, but you my did have half.
1: language skills, like a language I, degree, didn't you? I had a, I had a degree
3: in Spanish literature. I had lived in Spain. I spoke Spanish. I, li- I had lived in Korea. I spoke Korean. And so the, yes, I mean, coming here was not as mm-hmm. much of a upheaval as it would have been if it had been my first international experience. Mm-hmm. So, and how did yeah. you
1: get interested in Japanese shochu and awamori? Well,
3: it was just, it was another one of those random things. I was out drinking sake, actually, which I often did a couple nights a week. There was a, a local bar or what we would, a gastropub, we'd call it an izakaya over here. And the, the place specialized in sake. And it was a rainy day. And I was the weird the weird out-of-towner who would show up a couple nights a week just to kind of sit partway across one of the shelves in the cooler. And the guy was like, okay, let's mess with this import. Today, you're drinking this. And I didn't know, I didn't speak any Japanese, so I didn't know what he was saying exactly, but he pushed a glass in front of me and it was a glass of barley shochu. And I was like, I, I smelled it. I've got a decent nose. And I was like, that's not sake, that's a spirit. And he's, he's like, it's, it's shochu. I was like, um, don't, know, don't know what you mean. He's like, just, just try it. So I sit there, It's like, huh, that's that's kind of good. He's like, oh, you didn't, I thought you were going to hate that. Okay, just a second. Let me find you something you might hate. He turns around, brings another glass in. It's a, it's, the first one was a barley shochu, and the second one was a sweet potato shochu, which it, there's more of a learning curve there. It's super, super fragrant. It's earthy. It's spicy. It can be a little bit on what people would call it a little pungent, but it's just, it, it takes a while to get used to. There's a learning curve. And once so you get there's into different it,
2: kinds.
3: Yeah. And so I was just, hold on. I, I took a whiff and I'm like, this is not shochu. If the first one was shochu, then this is not. They're comp- sorry, I think you made a mistake. This could be shochu because that that was shochu. He's like, oh, no, 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 they're both shochu. I was like, Wait, what do you mean? They're, they're like, completely different drinks and he's like no shochu and shochu both shochu okay then he poured me a rice shochu and after that he poured me a kokto sugar shochu and then he poured me a a buckwheat shochu I was like what these are all the same thing and I was I was immediately I was being ripped back into craft beer world craft beer is just this amazingly diverse drink Made with all of these different ingredients, with so many different categories and subcategories, and and you know these are these are acceptable. These aromas are acceptable within this range, and then otherwise it's a fault. And all of that stuff was racing through my head, and I said, "This is like the craft beer of spirits. What is this? I can't believe I've never heard of this before." And then I realized that in the supermarket, and in the convenience store, and in the restaurant, and on the bar menu half of all of those things that I thought were sake, they're actually shochu. I just didn't realize it. And I was, that was the beginning of what, was, what has become for me the, the most intense hobby of my life and now a career. And it was purely by happenstance. It was just because this gentleman caught me at the perfect time with the rain pouring outside, no other customers coming through the door. And I was just trapped in this little world of what on earth is going on? Is there, has there, is there a glitch in the matrix? Because I was, <laughs> I was just not, I wasn't ready. I did not know that that was possible and I just needed to know more. So I asked him where, where, where do they make this? And he's, he's, he's not a, he's not a show guy. He's a sake guy. So he's just like, I, you know, it's, made down south. It's made in Kyushu. Kyushu is one of Japan's four main islands. It's the southwesterly of the four main islands. And it's sometimes referred to as the Scotland of Japan because of the amount of distilling that happens down there. And I said, How, can, I, can I take a train? And he's like, yeah, no, you probably want to fly. It's about a two hour flight from Tokyo. It's not that far. And, and I was on a plane and I was going down there and I was <laughs> knocking on distillery doors. I'm like, can I see? He's like whoa, weird, foreign guy. Can you not? And I, a eventually, secret. Was, yeah, eventually I was allowed into a couple of places, and I was, I was as much as I could express. I was like, I used to do something similar to this. I get it. I respect it. I just want to know how you how it's done. And it was so different from how.
2: Well, well, I have a couple questions for you. First of all, <laughs> what is the base, and what makes it so good? And also, what is oamori?
3: So let me start from the second part of your question, just because it's chronological here. Awamori is essentially Shochu's aunt.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: It's a little bit older. It's a it's a related tradition and it influenced the the start of Shochu in several ways. So Awamori is a spirit tradition founded in and basically still located in Okinawa Prefecture. Okinawa is the the southern, most southerly and most westerly as well, prefecture of the 47 different regions of Japan. And it is always made from rice. And it's you know, it's got about 600 plus years of history, which is in line with many of the early spirits traditions from around the world. It's really interesting because if you look at where distilling traditions started, they can all be traced back to Mesopotamia where alchemy got its start and where they learned to distill many, many different mixtures and and substances, mostly to make balms and salves and perfumes even. And then eventually, of course, you throw a little bit of wine in there and see what happens in the still and you get something similar to brandy and they're like, oh, now we're cooking with fire. And then that was the beginning of the great distilling traditions all around the world. If you look at the radiating you know, concentric circles of distillation, distillation uh, technology moving out from Mesopotamia all around the world. And you see very similar timelines for the beginning of scotch and the beginning of vodka and the beginning of brandy traditions and eau de vie and, and other spirits traditions show to an Aomori fit that timeline as well. And Okinawa got this spirit technology, the distillation technology first, and then we believe it spread north through the island chain up into Kyushu where shochu was born a, a few decades later. And shochu, awamori is only made from rice. Shochu can be made from 53 approved ingredients and their koji, K-O-J-I, which is an important culinary word these days. And as I indicated before, sweet potato and uh, barley, the first two I tried are actually the two best selling styles in Japan. Mm-hmm. And they account for more.
1: But there than- must be something common to those 53 ingredients that allow you to call it shochu, right?
3: Exactly. Yeah, great comment. And that's the koji that I just mentioned. Koji is Japan's national mold, M O L D, which is super sexy, I know, but mm-hmm. it is the base of. Pretty much everything we love about Japanese culinary culture—I'm talking miso, soy sauce, mirin, sake, oh. shochu, awamori, a bunch of other drinks made with koji, like koji whiskey, for instance—and without koji, which is a naturally occurring microorganism, you just don't have Japanese cuisine as we know it today. It's mm. so central, and that's Mary what and I ties are going out for Japanese. Together.
1: Mary and I are going out for Japanese cuisine tomorrow night. We'll have nice. to ask. So for we're going to check is. their menu carefully. Yes, nice, you, nice. you call them your spirits. Japan's best kept secrets. Why are shochu and amamori still basically unknown outside Japan?
3: It's remarkable, and that's a that's a that's a really good question that I get asked all the time. I think there's a couple of reasons for this. Number one is that while Sake had spent a few, more than a couple of decades working up fan bases and utility around the world, starting in probably the 1970s is a good time to say that the outward expansion of sake really began in earnest. Shochu was experiencing a renaissance here at home. And by 2003, shochu was outselling sake on its home turf, which even when I say that to this day, folks who live here, folks who have only ever lived here still don't believe me. I can, I have to show them Japanese tax data from the, from the cabinet office for them to believe that, oh, indeed, shochu and Aomori do outsell sake. That was back in 2003, 2004, that that, eclipse happened and it hasn't changed. Shochu and Almori have continued to do perform better in terms of shipping, overall value, overall sales at home. And there was this false sense of complacency instilled in the industry where they thought, hey, we're only ever going to grow at home. We might not really need to develop any foreign markets. And I think the, the Shochu and Almori industry were left sitting on it. On, on its collective hands.
2: Do you think it, they could become popular outside Japan?
3: I really, really, really do. I really, really, really do. I, and that's why I started Honkaku Spirits, just to help enable that process and to expedite it. And that was one thing that was really frustrating for me. I had been basically knighted. I don't know if that's the right <laughs> word, but Mentored. I had been... <laughs> Yeah, I've been denominated as a an ambassador, an official ambassador for these spirits by the Japanese government. And I was traveling all around the world. I was showing up at vin Expo in Bordeaux at a wine event and talking about shochu and Aomori. Like, what are you doing here, weirdo? And I was <laughs> just spreading the word as best I could to all corners of the globe. And it was taking so long for people to wrap their heads around it. It's a It's a really, really nuanced and complicated set of a class of spirits. And folks are are really only good at remembering what's right in front of them, you know? And Mm -hmm. the names are complicated, and it's one more new thing for people to get used to. And there just wasn't any of it leaving Japan. And so I decided in 2020, along with a a couple of business partners and, and a team of really, really supportive people, to start Honkaku Spirits, I, I basically quit my full-time, very comfortable university teaching position, I and I started a an import company in New York at the beginning of the pandemic, which was phenomenal timing, as you can probably imagine. Um,
1: <laughs> I wanted to ask you what you learned from doing business in Japan, and how oh, is it okay. different than doing business in the U.S.?
3: It is, it is night and day. It is... Oh. It is as nightly night as, and as daily day as, as you can find in these juxtapositions. Um, I, just a couple of simple um, examples. One of the big differences, of course, is human relationships and styles of communication. And I, I use this example a lot, a lot of times on, on the calls that we have with our team that is mostly U.S. Coast-based, uh, East Coast-based. So there's always a 13 to 14 hour time lag. One, one common refrain is, well, it doesn't hurt to ask you know, when you're dealing with the different stakeholders in the supply chain and all of these things. It doesn't hurt to ask. Let's see what they can do for us. It never, it never hurts to ask, right? Well, you know what? In Japan, just the act of asking sometimes, depending on the question, really can hurt. It really can do damage to the relationship. Like huh? you should know better than to ask. And that has been a really interesting thing to manage when dealing, when being kind of the fulcrum between two different, um, two different groups of people with actually interests that are very much aligned, but that have very different ways of, of navigating the challenges in front of them.
1: That's such That's an interesting a, divide that you point out between the two cultures. That's really interesting.
3: It's such a, Hurts a, to a ask, difference. In, and it, it doesn't
2: it hard hurt to ask. ask. But yeah. doesn't Japan depend more on relationships than we yeah, do here does. in the U.S.?
3: And that's a that's a great comment, because that was going to be my second point was one of the big thing in America where there's a lot of litigation. You know, there's so much. I gonna. I'll just we'll just sue. And that doesn't really happen over here. And so uh, there's a lot of handshake deals that get done all the time in Japan. Mm-hmm. And in the States, people are like, yeah, I, I trust you, but I want it on paper. And so bringing that, bringing that contract mentality to a lot of the negotiations over here, especially when you're starting out, is, is, another, is one of those, well, it does hurt to ask because people feel like, what, you don't trust me? You know, I, I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. Uh, yeah, I, 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 actually, I actually honestly believe you when you say that, you know, Mrs., Uh, distillery head, uh, owner of the distillery, I actually believe that you are going to do what you say you're going to do. But I'm just really sorry. This is one aspect of doing business in Japan that we cannot, or doing business in America, that we can't escape. And I'm going to have to find a way to get you to understand that this is in both of our best interests in order to protect the long-term survivability Mm -hmm. of our relationship. And that has been, my, my language skills are all right. They are, they, I, but I was never, I never studied to become a Japanese lawyer and much mm-hmm. less a contract lawyer, much less a, a, a beverage alcohol contract lawyer.
1: Yeah. With all that fine on, print.
3: Oh, geez. The fine print so, all
1: in Japanese, right? It's yeah. It's,
3: it's been an adventure. It's been a but, humbling experience,
2: but isn't it mostly based on a handshake?
3: in essence, you know, well, that's what I tell people. I I say, listen, we're going to do all the hard stuff up front. This is going to be painful. You're going to hate it. You're probably going to hate me at times, but we're going to get this done. We're going to sign on the, on the line and we're going to put this bundle of papers in a drawer somewhere in a cabinet. And we're never going to look at it again. Why? Because it is about this relationship that we have, that we've had for a while, for a long time, actually. (laughs) And you're, we're going to make sure that first and foremost, you, the distillery are going to benefit from this relationship. And secondarily is going to be whatever other companies are in the chain, getting these products to your new and eventual fans in the U S and everywhere else around the world. (laughs) And we can get there eventually. And, but it's just, it's a culture clash and it's two completely different mindsets that Mm -hmm. you're trying to, it's like herding cats. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) It's it's a, it's an adventure.
2: Well, you mentioned Koji whiskey. Can you talk more about that? What it is and elaborate
3: the, the, it's it's probably one of the best stories in the world and it, and it should be a Hollywood film. I don't know why this isn't a Hollywood movie yet. (laughs)
2: The,
3: (laughs) The first, the first Japanese person to ever make whiskey in the history of the world did so in Peoria, Illinois, back in the 1890s.
2: What? Well, oh,
3: wow. Yeah. His name was Dr. Kichi Takamine. And it, it, in addition to being, being a chemist and a genius, he was one of the hardest working people I've ever heard of. And he married a young woman from New Orleans, Caroline Hitch. They had kids. And he got the first biologic patent ever awarded in U.S. history for the use of koji, a naturally occurring mold, to make bourbon. Mm. He, he wrote the patent in such a way that it sounded like he may or may not have actually invented this koji thing, which nobody in the U.S. patent office had ever heard of and, or knew how to knew how to define. It was just mm-hmm. the same mold that had been used for centuries to make sake and make miso and soy sauce in Japan. And he, was, he had figured out a way, theoretically, to use it to make bourbon. And the Illinois Whiskey Trust, the largest, the, a, a monopoly to end all monopolies, the, the maker of more than three quarters of all whiskey sold in the US back in the 1800s, was very interested in the application of koji to make whiskey because they standard they stood to save a ton of money. They set him up in the Manhattan Distillery in Peoria, Illinois. He was successful. He figured out how to make bourbon. The, the trust was going to save double digits in terms of costs and operating costs and costs of goods. It was going. They were going to roll it out across all of their distilleries, of which they mo- they own most of them. And it was going to revolutionize whiskey in the US. Koji was going to become an American tradition.
4: Uh-huh. It was
3: going to be completely maltless. Koji does the same thing that malting does. That's the magic of it. it. It turns starches into sugar. And yeast, which we need for fermentation, as everyone knows, yeast can't ferment starch. It doesn't, it's too complex, but glucose, a simple sugar is the perfect fuel for fermentation. And if you give yeast sugar, yeast rewards us. It gives us alcohol. Mm. Everybody's happy. You give it more sugar. It gives us more alcohol. It's a beautiful uh, symbiotic relationship. Yeah. And, and yeast works. It can work with any type of, it can work with glucose from any source and Koji does a very efficient job of converting mm-hmm. starch into sugar. In fact, many would argue it's the most efficient sacrification agent in the world. So you get higher alcohol contents in the fermentation, which means you get more alcohol in distillation. It's, it's a, it, it works out mm-hmm. for everybody. So koji, this new process was going to put a whole industry on notice, the maltsters, the people who made malt, Mm -hmm. They weren't they weren't gonna take it lightly, especially from some some foreign guy from Japan. He's gonna put Mm -hmm. a whole industry out of business. Mm -hmm. They they broke into the distillery and they tried to kill
1: him. Oh nice. (laughs) That is a
3: he escaped. They couldn't get they couldn't catch him, so they settled for torching his lap, set him back by a couple of years. 1894, they're finally making Koji whiskey in Illinois being put away in casks to rest for a while but that was the teddy roosevelt days of the antitrust like trust busting and this is evil and monopolies really like i totally get the sentiment but that bit the manhattan distillery and to a large much larger degree the whiskey trust in the butt and they got busted up all the assets sold off and that was the end of koji whiskey in america mm. so this was kind of it was an american experiment with very, very Japanese roots, and uh, you know the, it's it's a sad ending to that story. But Dr. Takamine was immensely uh, influential in America. He moved to Harlem, and in his home laboratory, he isolated medical adrenaline. Mm-hmm. If you've ever used an EpiPen, you have Whoa. Dr. Takamine to thank. Whoa! It was the first time a human hormone had ever been synthesized in the history of in, in human history. He later took he later uh, funded the donation of the cherry trees to Washington, DC, which are blooming, will be blooming, blooming very soon. That's all him. And he did it, he did it quietly. He didn't want his name on it. He was super, super humble. He was an amazing gentleman. He was an amazing human. And he doesn't really get the shine that I believe that we believe he deserves. So we were really inspired by this guy. And we thought, well, how do we, how do we kind of close the loop on that experiment, the whiskey experiment? Can we do something similar? So we've been working with a distillery in Fukuoka, Japan, for a number of years to, you know, revive this, this so-called patented Takamine process that he actually patented in the U.S. He also patented, patented it in the U.K. He never used the U.K. patent, but and it's not the patent has lapsed it's now it's just using koji right which is used mm-hmm. all the time in japan and our koji whiskey takamine which is named after him and we got permission from his family trust in japan to use his name oh yeah is nice and ins- it's inspired by him it's inspired by by what he tried to do and in that in that light it is basically it's a, it's not it's not a bourbon because it's made with barley. It's made 100 percent with barley and bourbon is made with corn. But it's it's not it's not a Japanese whiskey because it's not made with malt. It's somewhere in between, it's this really interesting bridge between those two whiskey traditions.
1: Yeah, but you can still call it whiskey. You just oh yeah, yes, it yeah, has yeah. to you be the koji whiskey.
3: Exactly. Yeah, so we, and I wonder we you are trying to. Yeah. We're trying to revive. We want to bring, we want to help establish Kuoji whiskey because Dr. Takamine almost made it an American tradition. Mm -hmm. And we feel like it's such a fascinating and delicious style that once people try it, they'll, they'll be like, Oh yeah, this, this should be a thing.
1: Oh yeah. And, but you're essentially trying to establish new spirits categories in the U S so can you tell us about some of the success and failures Particularly, I would really like to ask, in relation to that question, have the U.S.-based Japanese cuisine restaurants been receptive and helpful to you for with tastings or anything like that? That's ah, uh, that's uh,
3: it, that's such a that's such a good question, and uh, man, this could be a whole podcast on its oh. Own. <laughs> um, it. Oh, because it's really it's really interesting. the The same people that really helped to move to bring sake into the public conscience back in the 70s and the 80s, a lot of those folks were Japanese expats who had moved into the food and beverage industry who had started sushi Mm -hmm. bars. Mm -hmm. And they wanted a little piece of home. So they were importing sake by the case and putting it on the menu. And that's where people really first got their, their first taste of sake. Now that generation... Of of people had left Japan before Shochu and Aomori really had its resurgence, its revival over here. So they completely missed it. So there's a certain generation of restaurant owner that I that I meet and I go through tastings with in the US, and they're just like, don't know if this is gonna work here. You know, this is really America has become kind of a sake country, and I don't know if they're gonna get shochu. It you all I have to do is like, well, when did you move to the States? Was it in the, was it in the nineties or before that? And they're like, yeah, I came in 92. It's like, well, yeah, you did, You, you left Japan before shochu ever left the Southern Island of Kyushu, right? They had never really had shochu before. They had no idea of what it was about.
4: And, and they didn't so know
1: it was outselling sake.
3: They had no idea. They were just yeah. as much of us at the, they were on the ground floor, like any other American consumer. So that's one whole Cohort of business owners, the most receptive, and so there's been some massive failures there. You would expect that Shoju and Aomori would work very well in Japanese restaurants, but it really depends on who's running the show. In some cases, Mm -hmm. our biggest successes in many cases have just been the the restaurants and the bars that really care about quality and flavor. And if you go to a bar that has a great mezcal. Program for instance,
4: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: that's a great candidate for shochu.
1: Oh, good, yeah, because people there's a lot in California. Now. Oh, in oh, Los yeah. Angeles, mezcal has taken over tequila, I think. Yeah, yeah.
3: exactly, Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. So and, there, oh, I,
1: there's an appetite in Los Angeles, particularly in the restaurant scene, for new kinds of taste of liquors and cocktails.
3: Well, then shochu is right up their alley because I said there's 53 different base ingredients. One other key point about shochu and awamori production is that they, you have to use a pot still. And this is I'm getting into the weeds a little bit, but I promise to step back out onto the sidewalk in a second. Okay. a pot still is a traditional still Mm -hmm. when you use a pot still you get a lower alcohol content in the distillate in the spirit but you get much more flavor and aroma so more character less alcohol it's a trade-off you can't have Mm -hmm. both right the the newer type of still the still that's used to make vodka the still that's used to make korean soju which sounds very similar to shoju i understand a soju soju is made in this type of still also a lot, of, a lot of types of whiskey use spirit from this type of still. It's called a column still or a continuous or a patent still. And it makes immense alcohol uh, quantities, up to like 96% ethanol.
2: Not like your bathtub.
3: <laughs> no, no. It, it, you, way more efficient than a bathtub gin. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> tons and tons of alcohol and very little character. That's the Mm -hmm. the trade-off. It's the opposite of a traditional pot still. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm back on the sidewalk now. To make shochu and aomori, you can only use an old-school pot still, which means the alcohol percentages are relatively low. The character is off the charts. Mm -hmm. And you can only use it once. Most whiskey in the world uses a pot still at least twice, for instance. It raises the alcohol percentage even more and reduces the influence from the ingredients in the fermentation. Hmm. Whiskey, Mm, all the flavor in whiskey comes from the barrel anyway.
2: That's so interesting.
3: But with shochu and awamori, it's just that one distillation. What you have is what you get. So you need a really, really beautiful and delicious fermentation. And then you're going to have a product that smells very similar to what it was like when it was fermenting. Sweet potato shochu smells like sweet potatoes.
2: So what was it like starting an alcohol importing business during the pandemic?
3: Oh boy, would I do it again? <laughs> I think I would, but I would do it very differently as you can probably imagine. Nobody could, nobody could fathom that in 2022, two years into it, we'd be, we'd be in year number three now, right? Nobody mm-hmm. thought that was coming. At least nobody I talked to. And mm-hmm. so we figured we could wait it out. And we largely to a certain, we have to a certain extent, but international shipping, anybody out there who deals with any type of international commerce Will know the pain that is involved mm-hmm. in trying to move products from one country to another these days. Um, even even domestic shipping in the states is jammed, and mm-hmm. partly because of this entire thing, and partly because of domestic issues that have been percolating and fer- fermenting. <laughs> use that word again for a See, long time: labor yeah. issues and and yeah. like and things that probably should have been dealt with decades ago, but just haven't been.
1: And I'm kind of curious what, what it's like. With them all now. I'm kind of curious what it's like to judge the Tokyo whiskey and Spirits Competition. You've <laughs> done that more than once, right?
3: Oh sure, yep. Yeah, I, I guess I'm on year number three. They have added a show to and Awamori category a few years ago, which is when I was invited to start participating.
1: Are you allowed um, to award your your brand the winner? <laughs> well, we we actually haven't
3: entered any of our stuff in any of our shochu or awamori in any competitions yet. We've entered Takamine in some competitions and it wins very quickly, mm-hmm. um, which has mm-hmm. been immensely gratifying. It's never been entered in any competition that I've judged at.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And if it was, I'm sure I would recognize it, but I, the chances of it ending up in a, in a flight that I was judging is basically nil. They do oh. a pretty good job of, of making sure that different tables get different. You know, some of the, The flights are replicated, but
2: it's
3: all Yeah, and they have to have
1: experts and a lot of the experts have conflict of interest, right? Yeah, and you gotta be you gotta keep,
3: they do, they have to be very careful. And it's one of the, but one of the most embarrassing things ever is when you're judging a competition and then later when you get the results, you realize that you judged one, a brand that you should be more familiar with and you missed it. And you maybe you underscored it or something and (laughs) you get, you like gave it a terrible grade. Uh, you know, you gave it like you give it a 64 out of 100 points, and it's like something that in your day to day job you you have on the front page of your website or something, and that that happens a lot actually.
2: Oops, uh, yeah, that's embarrassing. <laughs> Please um, tell us about your book, the Sochu Handbook, Shochu Handbook, and Shochoo. your two podcasts.
3: Thank you. Um, the shochu Handbook was initially released in 2014, it's available on Amazon, and it's an introduction to Japan's indigenous spirits. So if you want to learn more about the history, the serving styles, the production methods, and way more of everything related to Japan's indigenous spirits, then please pick up a copy of that. Um,
2: I love the the name of your podcast, Japan Distilled and Sake on on Air.
3: Sake on Air is partly supported by the Japanese, um, the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association, which is an extension of the Japanese tax office, I guess is one way to put it. So it's Hmm. partly government supported and it's 90% sake. And then I'm the one shochu and awamori that nerd in the ranks. So I always drag the conversation back in a a direction that I feel more comfortable talking about. And that one's been around for a few years. Very, uh, very, very good. And then more recently, Japan Distilled that I co-host with Stephen Lyman. And he's the author of the James Beard Award-nominated Complete Guide to Japanese Drinks. Cool. So we're a couple of authors and a couple of booze nerds. And, and uh, we just mm-hmm. talk about Japanese spirits. So that's Koji Whiskey. We talk about shoju and Aomori. We talk about Oda V Made in Japan. We talk about Um, The other amazing spirits traditions, like Japanese rum is an up and coming thing. Japanese gin is a force to be reckoned with. And we discuss all of these things on the episodes of that podcast. So if you like spirits or you just want to learn more about Japanese culture and Japanese drinks, then that's a good one for you as well. I think both of those are solid options.
1: Oh, great. We know you are very passionate also about giving back. So tell us about the charities that you support.
3: I'm, I'm a huge am um, of a fan of several different charities. One of them is, of course, named after my late father, the Ray Pellegrini Reaching for the Stars uh, scholarship, which just goes to providing tertiary education scholarships for kids who grew up in Vermont, are usually the first in their family to ever go to college, plan to settle in Vermont and give back to Vermont after they graduate. And so we try to give out a few scholarships every year mm. to help them, uh, to help make it feasible for in colleges. You, everybody knows this college is expensive. Um, another one that I'm a big fan a bunch of different things. And, and uh, I'm going to just pick uh, rare for instance, is a, a, um, an organization that does uh, many, many different things. R A R E. The the primary focus, I think, in most cases is to protect the world's oceans and to to clean them up, to protect the biodiversity. And I live in a country that is islands and the ocean is all around. And I also live in a in a country that has a very fitful relationship with the aquatic resources surrounding it. And there's over issues of overfishing, and I'm very co- cognizant of the fact that my business depends on shipping heavy items across the planet. It's, it's not carbon neutral by any means. And so I just want to do something, um, mm-hmm. do as many things as possible to mm-hmm. mitigate the impact that the business has on the planet. And a lot of that, the bottles are on a ship. We're sailing across Mm -hmm. the globe for a month at a time. And it's just, you know, it's, it's Mm -hmm. something without, without a healthy, without a healthy system, obviously then nothing works.
2: I love that you're doing that. I think more people in the spirit industry ought to be involved in their, in charities and to contributing to a healthier environment Our guest today on Late Boomers has been Christopher Pellegrini, expert on Japanese spirits and founder of Honkaku Spirits. You can find out more about him on his website, HonkakuSpirits.com. That's H-O-N-K-A-K-U Spirits.com. Thank you so much, Christopher. Loved it. Thank
3: you. Uh, The pleasure was entirely mine. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for letting me ramble so much to all of you out there. (laughs) Keep smiling, keep your chins up, and uh, come by.
1: And we remind our listeners to please follow us on Instagram, on Late Boomers and individually at I am Kathy Worthington and at I am Mary Elkins. DM us if you'd like and visit our website, lateboomers.biz, B-I-Z, to drop us a line. We hope through this podcast to enlighten, inspire, and entertain you. Thanks again, Christopher. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers The podcast that is your guide to creating a third act With style, power, and impact Please visit our website and get in touch with us At lateboomers.biz If you would like to listen to or download Other episodes of Late Boomers Go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com
2: This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here, and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact.
0: Go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Have you ever asked yourself this question, why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomenNetwork. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. It's a seven-module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand, and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.